KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Kristen Johansson. When I think about 9-11 and how it was 19 years ago, it, it really, to me, seems unbelievable. It just doesn't feel that long. I think, you know, we, we thought of 20 years coming up, and it's just really shocking that it's been 20 years, two decades since that day. This year, I wanted to do a story on the first responders generally because this year in particular with COVID-19, you know, there's really been a large focus on them, that they're working even as COVID is around us. They're continuing to go into the hospitals and they're continuing to go fight fires and they're, you know, continuing to investigate crimes that happen on their streets. And so I just wanted to kind of get uh, that perspective of of 9-11 from first responders. So I reached out to Greg Massey. Um, He's a retired Philadelphia police sergeant who worked in the 911 operations center. And Massey was asked to go to New York City by his police commissioner, John Timoney, who actually was a deputy in the NYPD before. So he sent Massey and a few others up to New York City to kind of see what they needed, what the NYPD needed, what fire department needed, just to see how they, how we as a city could help New York. Okay, I'm a retired Sergeant Greg Massey. I retired from the Philadelphia Police Department in 2017 after a 40-year career with the department. I spent most of my career in the latter part in the 911 center, technology projects, complaints, et cetera. Did a little bit of everything in 911. And so take me back 19 years. I'll never forget the day for maybe different reasons, but you know, I was in class and I heard and somebody said the thing about a, a plane hitting a tower. Take me back. You were talking about you guys were in emergency operations at the time? Yes, yeah, so I was actually in the 911 center that morning for my normal tour of duty. And uh, we got alerted from the city that there was a uh, a plane that crashed into one of the trade uh, World Trade Center buildings in New York. And uh, before we could actually react to see exactly what was happening, because we actually had a television set in my office, and we realized that this was not a small plane. It was a larger aircraft. And then within minutes, we actually witnessed a second aircraft hit the tower. So we knew this was not an accident. And uh, immediately after that, uh, we were alerted that the emergency operations center was going to be activated as a full activation, which is every city agency and also local and state were going to be activating the uh, the emergency operations center. There was a lot of information that was still being disseminated uh, within our jurisdiction, but also across the country. Uh, We realized that there was numerous aircraft that were still in the air. Uh, Every city was a potential target. And, and, we, and you and I talked about that, that, you know, I was, again, in class, and they're talking about this other plane that's flying around Pennsylvania, and people thought, we're, in, at least in our class, we're better to hit than Philadelphia, because it's the yes. birthplace of America. Sure. I mean, Philadelphia has a lot of, a lot of historical significance, and, uh, you know, when you think about it, we always say we're a safe haven we're between Newark and Washington, which seem like they always have their share of tragedies and incidents. But we realized that, yeah, we were a potential target, as many other cities were. And then shortly thereafter that, we learned that the Pentagon was struck by an aircraft. And then later on, the Shanksville incident, which was, uh, again, another tragedy. But I, I always said uh, most people do not know, especially the residents that day, that there was aircraft still unaccounted for. And one of them was actually 
coming across the Atlantic from Paris uh, to Philadelphia. And for some reason, they could not locate that aircraft. They were using various communication methods. And we thought for one point that that, fil- that aircraft may be heading to Philadelphia, again, as a potential uh, target. But we were then alerted that they did uh, locate the aircraft and they le- landed at an airport, not at Philadelphia. I think it was somewhere either uh, along the East Coast. But yeah, it was it was one of those days where so much information was trying to be developed. A lot of situational awareness reports we were trying to digest and see where we were going to go. What, what was going to happen next? Because we really didn't know. And I don't think most people knew. Uh, so then when did you get the assignment, if you will, and how did you get the assignment to go up to New York? So later that afternoon, you know, my commanding officer contacted me. And most people don't realize that at the time, John Timoney was our police commissioner. And John Timoney was a deputy commissioner from NYPD. That's where he came from. So uh, our assumption was that either NYPD reached out to John Timoney or knowing the late John Timoney, as I know it, he probably reached out to them and said, what can we do to help? And uh, they assembled a small, which we call an advanced team, which was myself because my expertise was communications. And I even a question of why do you want me up there? But I realized when I got there that a lot of the communications equipment was on the top of both World Trade Center buildings and both NYPD and FDNY uh, had hampered communications. And that's, you know, when you have no communications, that even adds a lot more complexity to the event. And then uh, we went up again with, uh, at the time, it was uh, Inspector Charles Temporelli, who retires as deputy commissioner, and then uh, Chris Werner, who's now a chief inspector, and he's still active in the department, and Mike Vincent, who's a retired police officer, but he was assigned to our crime scene unit. So all four of us went up the following day just to offer any kind of assistance and report back to Philadelphia what they need the most. And uh, again, I remember arriving at 4 a.m. the next morning. It was an early start for us, but NYPD was waiting for our arrival. They met us at the Lincoln Tunnel. And uh, before proceeding to Ground Zero, we went to the 77th Precinct up in the Bronx and was more kind of a briefing to get us acclimated what we were going to see, what was expected. And they laid down some ground rules for us because this was a very, very volatile situation yet. And so after everybody had briefed, we then went up uh, in a caravan of other NYPD officers to ground zero. And I don't to interrupt you, but when you're driving, I guess, up 95 and you first see it, you know, the smoke billowing, what was that? Can you just paint that picture? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, one of the, you know, when they say there's an old expression, New York City's a city that never sleeps. I will tell you this, Kristen, when we came up 95 that morning, you know, from Philadelphia, got on Jersey, there was very, very little traffic on 95 and the New Jersey Turnpike. Because you remember, everything basically stopped in this country, for not just air travel. I mean, everything just stopped. So it was a very eerie sight. But when we got to New York City and we yeah, we could see the smoke on the horizon, but even in New York City, the only vehicles we saw moving was, you know, public safety, police, fire, EMS. That was the only ones out on the street. And was and there was very little bystanders that we could see uh, going into New York City, into the Bronx. Uh, but when we got down to Ground Zero, as we approached Ground Zero again, Streets were desolate, but when we got close to ground zero, within a few blocks, 
what really caught my attention, there was literally hundreds of people. And these were people, they were family members. And they had photographs of people that I guess were part of their family. And they would come up to our cars. Of course, our windows were up because there was still a lot of uh, you know smoke in the area. And they would come up and we can gather. They were showing us the pictures saying that they knew we were heading to ground zero. And I guess if we saw these family members, it was our obligation, I guess, to let them know that they were safe and sound. But that was the most depressing for me because there were so many people that came up to us and what could we say? And then as we got to ground zero, a lot of photographs were just either taped to buildings of walls or they were hung on fences. Again, these were just hundreds of people that people were just looking for, you know, and they remained a constant vigil 24 hours around the clock. The the days we were there, they were always there. They were just, they were desperate for news. Then if we would found somebody, you know, let the authorities know. But, you know, uh, I told you earlier when we got to ground zero, it was something, what I, what I can recount, and I actually started watching some 911 stories last night that were on various channels. <clears throat> One of the things I remember, again, it's another vivid point, there was literally thousands of people at ground zero working unison together, both police, fire, and throngs and throngs of construction workers. And they were working vigilantly on the actual piles of rubble. And uh, as many people as we saw, you think it would be a loud, loud venue, but it wasn't. It was actually the opposite because you have to remember that they were always hoping that we were going to find more survivors. So we kept our ears really literally open. So the noise was kept to a minimum, uh, hoping they would find some survivors still trapped in the rubble. And then we could locate them by their sounds. They had various pieces of equipment, listening devices, where if they thought they found somebody, they would zero in with that equipment. Hopefully there was somebody that was still alive. But unfortunately, in my tenure that was there at the time, there was, I think, one individual, not in my proximity, but on the other side that they did find. But at that point, you know, as each hour clicked by and as the days went by, that we knew that the... uh, it was going to be very an impossibility of finding somebody alive because it was an active scene. Fires were still burning yet. Uh, the smell in the area, I, it, that's one thing you can't get from television. The smell in the area was, was, you know, something you won't forget. But I do remember that throughout the time we were there, they had a set of, uh, I'll call them air horns. These were really horns mounted on the trucks, the fire trucks, construction trucks. When they, when they found somebody and of course it was a victim that was not alive or they found partial remains these air horns would sound and what would occur everybody would now stop and now the it was actually a a kind of a solemn memorial procession they would move the victim or what was left of a victim off of ground zero and they moved it into a makeshift morgue and this was set up right near ground zero but it was on the water side and they would take them through and everybody would stop what they were doing and then remains would then be then kind of like put together and they would put them in there, literally trailers that were kind of like refrigerated trailers. And this would happen quite often during the time we were there. Another set of horns that you were, you got accustomed to, there was a lot of building engineers that were stationed all around ground zero. And their job was, there was a lot of member freestanding structure yet. 
not everything collapsed, not just at the trade centers, but adjoining buildings. So the building engineers had their sophisticated equipment set up. And if they've seen any sort of movement in any of the uh, remaining structure, again, they would sound an alarm and then everybody would evacuate the ground zero swerk site because they were concerned that remaining structures were going to come down at any given point and even, you know, trap more responders or severely hurt some people. So they were to set out horns that we were accustomed to in our ears that they found somebody or there was danger lurking with another possible collapse of remaining structures. And so how many days were you up there? We were up there for four days. And uh, when I say days, there were actually not an eight-hour day as you and I are accustomed to, or even your work, you probably put in more than an eight-hour day. But we were at, literally, we would get back uh, probably 10, 11 o'clock at night after a full day. And, uh, of course, you know, it was very hard to, uh, when we got done, remember you're at the ground zero, we got accustomed to eating, like, snacks, granola bars, crackers, because you weren't stopping for lunch. There was no such thing as that. But uh, there were... There was one diner, which I can't remember where it was at, but there was a diner that kind of set out in, in downtown Manhattan. Probably the New Yorkers know exactly what I'm talking about. But when we got back there, uh, the NYPD knew this diner was open for first responders. And that's where we would go at nighttime. And, and what was amazing, you can say what you want about various, you know, we, all, we have nicknames for Philadelphians and New Yorkers. But I can tell you, when we went into the diner at night, and there was a, a large group of us, NYPD, Philadelphia, whatever. When we would get done eating, at the end, we would say to the waitress, where's our bill? It was already picked up already. Our money was not good there. Everything that we did, I mean, we were we were accustomed at the end of the day because of all the toxins. They gave us fresh socks and clothes. We had to really kind of decon ourselves to get this material off. And, and uh, this was done routinely around the clock or... If you had stuff in your eyes, there was eye wash stations located around Grand Zero. Wash your eyes. So, I mean, everything that they did, they possibly could to, to prep us and keep us safe as possible. But I, I think the story has to be told, uh, Chris, that, you know, 9-11 happened 19 years ago. But 9-11 is still occurring today as we speak. And, and what I mean by that, that all the first responders and construction workers and civilians Everybody is still suffering from not one today, both mentally and physically. And what I mean by that is there's many, as you are well aware of the Zerota Act that was passed in Congress, that there are not one responders that are affected by various 911 illnesses. Uh, I can tell you that when I got involved in the program to be checked, uh, you know, a number of years ago, you know, I thought it was just part of aging. But I found out later on through certification process, it's not aging. It was all uh, being exposed to not on one toxins and a number of my friends uh, are being uh, again today uh, how can I say challenged because they're, they're, they're constantly taking medications for this a lot of my first responder friends have passed away from 9-11 illnesses I mean they basically told us that there are 68 various cancers now that are affecting 9-11 uh, responders and they're, uh, they tell us statistically that more people will be will will die from 9/11 than the actual incident itself because of all the illnesses they're they're undergoing and it's just it's just a shame but i really believe that i can answer for all the responders that if it happened today uh, we would go up there immediately to do what we can do and 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 that was our job 
I just felt that at the time when I was there, I mean, I was there for communications, but there was really much I can offer. But what I did come back to Philadelphia with, we put our own fact find a report and that if it ever happened here in Philadelphia, you know, at least on the communication science, we're more equipped to handle a catastrophic incident regarding lost communication the way our system is designed today. And New York at the time wasn't, and I probably, I, I'm assuming now that everything's been changed around, diversified, that if it ever happened again, they can handle it. But when we did get back, one of the things we did offer the city of New York, they needed a lot of forensic help, uh, forensic for identification purposes. So uh, right after we got back, there was a whole team of Philadelphia police officers and supervisors from our crime scene unit, forensics unit, that went up and they were up there a lot longer we were to assist NYPD in identifying so many remains that were just buried and buried within, you know, the 9-11 rubble itself. So um, you were up there four days uh, knowing you and kind of knowing first responders. I'm sure you wanted to be, I'm like this close to crying a little bit, but you guys probably wanted to stay up for however long, right. To help out. And one of the things that's striking me now is thinking of, you know, just general first responders and kind of dealing with COVID, you know, now that we're in this situation and they're continuing to be there to, for, to, to do this. Do you feel like it's kind of like, um, you know, parallel and it's hard to say parallel, but in that way. No, Chris, I think that's a good word. I mean, you're right. If, if we look at COVID-19, it's really, it's a 9-11 when you think about it, because but one thing about first responders, and I don't have to tell you this, and that when there is danger, it's just, I've heard this number of times, we go rushing in when everybody's rushing out. And during the COVID-19 response, just not just here, but of course the country, but Philadelphia, I can explain. Philadelphia Fire and Philadelphia Police continue to answer the calls. And to the point where, as you know, a number of our police officers and firefighters have been affected by COVID. But that's, that's our job. I mean, it's nothing special. You know, when we took an oath to be a police officer or a firefighter, we realized that there is going to be inherent danger in our work. You know, uh, firefighters search and rescue and they save people and put fires out and police. Our job is to go out and, you know, you know prevent crime and, and do crime uh, prevention and, and apprehend when we can. But there is another hidden danger. This COVID is a hidden danger. And, you know, we could be exposed every day to people. We don't know if they have COVID. We'll find out later on if we're affected. But you're right. This could be the this could be our 9-11. Uh, but I, I mean, I, as I said before, I mean, you know, they say history repeats itself, Chris. And, and I, I said it, you know, the generate the young generation now who have we're not around this time. You know, this is a learning tool. And I hope it's being, you know, taught in schools across the country that would have affected this country. And, and I said that out of a tragedy, always something good occurs. And one of the things I said, and I actually posted on my own, my own Facebook page this week, it, and it wasn't something that I created. It's something I saw a number of years ago, but I missed 9-12. 9-11, I don't miss that, but I do miss 9-12. What I mean by 9-12, that I remember the very next day that this entire country, regardless of race, creed, religion, beliefs, it came together. And what I mean by that, I've never seen so many patriotic moments by the people in this country, whether it was displaying a flag or coming to New York. I mean, I can tell you, 
the uh, up in New York, there were thousands of, of, of responders that weren't called, but they came up on their own. Or, or thousands of people that were bringing food to the site or clothing. The country just came together. And it just, that major tragedy brought something good out of it. And, and that's what I miss. I miss that. And I'm hoping that, you know, that could occur again, not because of a tragedy, but this country has to come together. Because when we come together, we work as a team. You know, we, get, we have all this talent, but if this talent doesn't work, work as a team, then it isn't worth a dime. I mean, and I really mean that sincerely, that both uniform and non-uniform people just put so much heart and effort. And, you know, I wasn't around for Pearl Harbor, but to me, the 9-11 was a Pearl Harbor for us. And eventually, maybe not in our lifetime, but there could be another 9-11 again in this country. And I would hope that after that 9-11, a 9-12 does occur. And everybody forgets their differences. Let's come together as a common goal. Because that's what we're about. And that's what I really believe in. Is there anything else I didn't ask you that you wanted to add? Chris, I, I, I think we covered all the points. I said, I just feel that for all the responders that are out there that are, are suffering from various illnesses, and there's many of them, Chrissy, that's, a, that's another story for itself. You know, uh, and a lot of them are no longer here with us now. Uh, most of my friends that I kept in contact have passed on. A few of us here in the city, we have our own little, I'll say, contingent, and we all get treated for various illnesses. Uh, they're the ones I, I, I pray for, you know, because they did this because it was our job. And I said, even if we weren't ordered up there, if they asked me to go again, I would do it immediately again. Because I think that at that point, you know, NYPD, FDNY, New Yorkers had to see the response from the outside. They needed, as I said, a rallying point. We needed something to help boost their, their morale. And, you know, for the very small, minuscule thing that I did, you know, I felt that we had to do something. And I'm grateful that the late John Timoney, who's no longer with us, he passed on. I'm glad that he gave me the opportunity to go up there to witness something. And all the 9-11 programs that I'm going to watch, it doesn't really tell the full picture. You had to be up there to witness it, the smells, the sounds. That is really something that I'll have for the rest of my life that I'll remember. And, and uh, again, and I know a lot of there's a lot of people that are living 9-11 again, especially the responders, both today and tomorrow, you know, that the responders they came with didn't come home with. That's the sad part. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. Like, I think for everybody that lived through it, it's obviously a very emotional day, but because you just sit, think back to like every moment of that day that you remember, you know, there's birthdays you forget. They're great days, but... Yep but everybody remembers this one. I mean, I remember like what I did before and what I did after and what, like what we eat for dinner. I mean, there's just like, it's every little piece of that day. I remember before and after, I don't know. You could say why. I mean, I know why, you know, but it's just like, it's so crazy. Thank you for everything. You, you, did you know what, Chris? And I, I, one thing I like to add, the one moment that they see you, see all the time. If you remember president Bush came to New York, and he stood on a pile with a retired firefighter. And I can tell you this right now, and I'm not, I don't like to get into politics, but that day there was no Democrats, there was no Republicans. Everybody, the, the president, the few words that he said that day, it gave this country a lot of hope that we were going to overcome, you know, this tragedy. And we did, we did. But I, I just want to make sure that people don't forget and remember that this could happen again. But remember, we got through it, we were resilient. 
Uh, and, you know, I would think that the same thing that the same generation that's coming up now would do exactly the same thing if they were called upon again. You know, uh, this is uh, something they should remember because it affects everybody. It's not just the responders, but their families and their offspring. Uh, it's, it's something that'll be touching them for the rest of their lives. I think what's so striking to me about 9-11 is how war was brought to this country. It was in the heart of America. And I just, I can't stop thinking about those people who saw the airplane coming into their work window view or for those passengers who knew it was the end. Like the terror they must have felt, the heartbreak of their loved ones, it still reverberates to all of us 19 years later. I mean, we're still crying about it. And it hopefully will forever remain in our hearts and hopefully we really do never forget. <laughs> 